Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Roberts. Nick Bertinoli is an itinerant data scientist who lives almost full-time from his van with his partner, Laura McNerney, previous guest of the show. He's also a mathematician, a tinkerer, and, though he may not admit it, a futurist and philosopher. Outside of this, Nick enjoys mountain biking, rock climbing, and mountaineering. He's worked for the likes of 3M, a series of startups, and even Verily, which is a health research company in Alphabet. And he does this as he travels the world with little more than a laptop on his mission for adventure and high accuracy, precision, and recall. I speak to him today about the state of machine learning and his areas of research. We also discuss the evolving relationship between humans and machines, potential futures, and how to keep current in one of the most dynamic domains of human knowledge. I hope you enjoy today's show. So I guess just to kick it off, um, you know, if you could just kind of describe your life a little bit for listeners, like, you know, what did you study in college and, you know, how did you end up like where you are? So I mostly work on like machine learning type systems. I, I work on all kinds of stuff from kind of doing like research to also doing, you know, like production applications. Uh, so what, what this means usually is finding a way to, to take some information, some data and, and find a way to. To, to get that data and then also to uh, show to, to, to kind of massage it into a form that a machine can read and understand and then do some kind of you know uh, valuable action based on that data. Um, so my, my background is I, I, I started off studying biology but then realized that wet bench research was just like you just can't control all the variables. Um, so you'd run an experiment and it'd be like, why did this experiment go wrong? And people would just shrug and say, I don't know, just run it again until you get results that you expect. And I didn't particularly enjoy that. Um, I liked having kind of fine grained control over the experiments that I ran. Um, and I also liked math. So I studied math in undergrad and did a lot of research related to kind of like genomics. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed writing programs to like do statistics related to data and that kind of you know, led me to this whole data science, machine learning area. Um, and then in grad school, I started kind of studying uh, natural language processing. So, you know, how do I teach machines to understand uh, human language? Um, and I found that to just be absolutely delightful. Um, it's, it's, it's really challenging. Uh, it, it was super interesting. It still is super interesting. Um, we've made tons of progress in the last five years. Um, but I don't know. It, it's it's when you, when a machine can kind of like understand like when when you get it to kind of like I don't know when, when you when you get it to extract the information that you want from from like human language, it's, it's very rewarding. But also when you get it to like generate human language, that's also very rewarding. So it's just uh, a lot of dopamine. I don't know if that's a <laughs> good explanation. Well, that, well, that's uh, oh, that's a very great explanation. So I I guess one one kind of follow up to that would just be you know what what is the frontier right now in natural language processing and what would your response be to people who are like well don't we have that like nailed already <laughs> interesting yeah the the frontier is evolving so quickly it's hard to it's, it's almost hard to nail down like it, it, in the course of like in 2018 I, I was working on some language models and i like implemented the state of the art and then like two months later there was a new state of the art that just crushed it and so i had to re-implement it and then there was another one it was just like in the course of a year i had to rebuild the same thing like four times because things have, were moving so fast um so the edge i, I would say maybe <sighs> introducing I, th I think one thing is maybe introducing uh like knowledge into some of these like deep language models that we have. So figuring out how to incorporate uh, uh, like knowledge bases with these more kind of deep like black box models. So maybe this needs a little bit more explanation, but like we've, in the last few years, we've come to find some uh, <clears throat> deep learning architectures that work very, very well for um, like language tasks, these are called transformer, like transformer-based models. So I don't know if you've heard of BERT or like Roberta or GPT-2 or GPT-3 or any of these, but there's there's just a number of these models and they use this, this kind of uh, mathematical unit called a transformer um, and uh, to uh, 
so this is kind of the basic building block of these models. Um, and it works very, very well for linguistic tasks. Um, but they, they still kind of like, I'm, I've sent you a number of like GPT results and you see them all over the internet and they're very sensational and exciting. Um, but like they still fail at some kind of basic tasks every now and again. Um, so like they can accidentally be very racist um, or like sometimes like they'll say things that make sense. They're almost like Trumpian, right? Like they're very good at generating spans of text, which when you read them, you're like, that feels right. And that sounds interesting. But sometimes when you dive into them, it's like, doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense or the context isn't quite correct. Um, and so kind of like doing abstract reasoning about things is not quite there. Um, so figuring out how to kind of incorporate knowledge into these linguistic models so that things can do more abstractive reasoning is really, I, I think, uh, something that we need to work a lot on. Um, and these models are deceptively good uh, at these things. Um, like, like we can do summarization very, very well now. Um, so like you can give us a patent and we can write a, and a machine can write a human readable summary of it or news sources can be summarized like super well. Like we're, we're getting very, very good at tasks, which, you know, five years ago, I would have said, oh, we're 20, 30, 40 years away from that. Um, other things, uh, AI, like other things that are cutting edge right now, uh, I think thinking a lot about kind of like, I don't know, how to make models safe, if that makes sense. So like it, your, your model is going to have whatever bias your data has. And so what are ways that you can build into the learning systems to ensure that your model doesn't become racist or your model doesn't crash an airplane? Um, so how do you, how do you verify, how do you verify these deep systems? So, so like, uh, you know, like, uh, model verification and how do you kind of um, steer training um, in in kind of non-biased ways? How do you prevent these these types of uh, data bias problems? I think those are those are some areas that I think are uh, very hot right now. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of the people maybe listening to this podcast and aren't aren't you know deep in it and don't know kind of these algorithms. Um, or, or even know maybe that GPT-3 is an algorithm. <laughs> um, and uh, I was wondering, you know, if you could kind of give the, like sort of the layman's um, overview of like what um, what GPT-3 is. And I, I assume it's a type of neural network. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if so, I mean, um, if you could give kind of a primer on, you know, what a neural network is and kind of how basically it functions, that would be cool. Sure. So there's there's a few questions in there. So what a neural net is and how it functions. Um, maybe we'll we'll start there. So uh, neural nets sound really fancy, um, but I, I think that the math like the math is not as crazy complicated as some might lead you to believe. Um, so the idea of a neural network goes way back to like 1950s. Like I'm probably getting that date wrong, but it's kind of in that in that area. So it's an old idea, and it started off with you know this 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 thing called like a a perceptron. So basically, you have some set of inputs, and uh, you. The bit, so basically, you have some you have some set of inputs. You can think about them like pixels in an image. And um, what you want to do is make some prediction about that image. Like, is it dark or light outside? So you could think that, like, you know, the higher the value of those pixels, uh, the you know, the lighter the image, the lower they are, the darker the image is, and all the perceptron is going to do is it's kind of like looking at each one of those pixels and then you show it an image and it's, and it, so it starts with some random, you know, random numbers associated with every pixel point in the image and you show it an image and it makes a prediction based on that random value that says, Hey, is this light or dark? And it says, Hey, it's dark, but maybe it's light. So then what we do is we look at kind of the, the, the difference in that prediction. So, you know, it said it was, uh, it said it was light, but it was actually dark, so it got it wrong. So we need to change all of the weights in the image that contribute. So you know, every pixel that said, "Hey, this was, you know, a light image when it was a dark image," we need to change that. So we we kind of we look at the you know the difference in our output prediction from the input, and we just make a tiny tiny change in the opposite direction for all of those things that you know voted incorrectly. And you just do this over and over again for lots and lots of data. And eventually, you'll kind of learn uh, learn to distinguish, you know, light from dark or something along those lines. 
basically all a neural net is, is we take a lot of these, these little units, which have weights, which we learn, and some kind of output that determines like one or zero. And we want to stack, we just stack these on top of each other deeper and deeper. Um, and there you go, that's a neural net. So that's the kind of the, the oldest kind, just like a multi-layer perceptron. Um, and you can kind of adjust, so there's a few little things that you can tune to adjust these in different ways. So um, the weights are gonna kind of stay the same, right? So you can think like, so you have like one neuron and it touches like every word in a sentence. And that's just that, you know, you could keep that as a perceptron. Or if you make the, uh, if you make kind of the, the way that it makes its final decision like, so, so, so they have what's called an activation function, which is a um, non-linear math, uh, it's a nonlinear function that you apply to all the weights. So you could think about it as you have inputs of like one, zero, zero, and then you have a bunch of weights and these are learned by the neural network. And so the weights are gonna multiply each of those numbers. So if you have an input that's like one, zero, zero, weight one times one is gonna be weight one, weight two times zero is zero, weight three times zero is zero. So what comes up to that next level is weight one times one. And we wanna learn what weight one is. That's the job of our algorithm. Um, but you know we're going to try to make a prediction of one or zero. So let's say that our output should be one, and weight one was uh, like weight one in the network was like negative one or something. So it makes it negative one, and then the output goes to negative one. That's not quite right. So the difference between what we expected one and negative one is two. So we're going to kind of take that error and we're going to adjust the weight by a little bit and move it in the direction that we want it to be. So it, hey, it was too negative. We want to move it positive. So maybe we move it up towards, you know, minus 0.5. And then when we run this a second time, uh, it gets close. Uh, and then, you know, zero and zero, we're both zero, which is not correct either. So we want to push those a little positive too. And well, well, we didn't worry about what those weights were because the input was zero, Never mind. Um, so you just kind of gradually do that until you get the right output. Now you can change what your activation function is um, to be, uh, so, so, so what we were doing here is we're just looking at kind of like a linear activation function where we're just taking the input, which is one times the weight, and we're looking at what the output is. But if you only use linear activation functions, then your neural network can't learn very, very simple things. So you could make a neural network that's just super, super deep, but you couldn't learn uh, this like very simple functions like exclusive or. So if I had a, uh, a data set that was true every time uh, like feature one was uh, one and feature two was zero or feature two was one and feature one was zero, I could never learn that. No neural net could ever learn that if it just had that single multiplication linearity. In order to actually learn interesting things, you have to add some type of non-linearity so that you're not just drawing straight lines, you're, you can kind of draw curves. Um, and to do that, you know, if you want to do something like logistic regression, uh, you'll use like a, a sigmoid function. But there's all kinds of other functions that people use. And people like many, many research papers have been written on just simple things like changing what this activation function is. What many people use now is this thing called ReLU, which is just a, it's just a, a function which is zero if your, you know, your weight times your input is less than zero. And it's, uh, whatever your, and it's just whatever that input is after that. So it's just this function that is like zero and then splits off and becomes like y equals x afterwards. Um, but now I'm getting kind of like two into the weeds. So you take all these things, you stack them up, that's a multi-layer perceptron. Um, two, there's lots of other types of neural nets. You'll probably hear, hear about convolutional neural networks. Um, so these just, it's all kind of this same principle, but what we use now is we have, in, we have these little like, uh, image filters where we learned that like you could imagine that you have an image and you want to kind of understand that image. And so imagine instead of learning just kind of like a line of these little neurons, you put kind of each, you kind of put like, you know, nine neurons into, you know, a three by three square and you, uh, you like just multiply that square by every nine by nine patch in an image. And you learn the kind of the best weights that learn features that way. And you stack lots of those up. Um, and then we get to kind of language. And now we have these things, we use kind of these things called like recurrent neural networks or you know, these types of transformer models. And what we're doing here is we're kind of looking, we're, 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 we're taking these neurons and we're kind of unfolding them through time. And so you have kind of this model that like looks at each, in, it looks at each input and it has um, 
It has the ability. So, so you'll you'll look at the the first. You'll have a neural net that kind of looks at the first input, and then it learns some representation from that, and then that representation kind of feeds into, you know, the next the the the, the model for the next input, and feeds into the model for the next input, and so on and so forth. Um, and then you kind of stack these up, so you have this thing that's like very deep and also can kind of move through time. Um, and so GPT two is kind of this later form of that. Um, I haven't read the GPT-3 paper yet, regrettably. It is 75 pages, and I just I haven't I haven't had the time really to sit down and dive into it. Well, and and it's not like casual reading either, is it? It's like math. It's like math and stuff, and, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and so I think one one question that I think a lot of people may have just not having a firm grounding in the theory behind a lot of this stuff is you know, is it actually like our neural nets really like a, is it just a convenient term that people use to kind of like evoke the sense of kind of what's going on? Or is it, or is it kind of like uh, an actual human on in your brain? <laughs> there are what, a lot of, what are between those concepts? There are a lot of differences. Um, so like, I don't know, you, you can, you can think about it this way. It's a it's a very very simplistic model of what a brain of what a neuron might look like, right? I mean, the the idea of a perceptron was modeled after our understanding of neurons, right? For a neuron, you have you have kind of this uh, big blob, and it's got lots of little dendrites on it, and all of those go out and touch other neurons. And you can think about these as like the little weights. And when enough information comes in, uh, they kind of build up enough of an action that they can fire kind of this action potential and they send a signal downstream to another neuron tells it to fire. Like in that respect, ah, these are kind of similar to that, right? Because you have an input, you know, they go in, when it when you hit a certain threshold, it kind of fires this thing and moves on. And then, you know, the, the other neurons downstream, they're all attached to that neuron, then get signal from that one. Maybe they fire, maybe they don't, depending upon how much signal they get. So from that respect, they are, uh, similar but like to say that your brain works at just that level is like a gross simplification um so i i don't think it's a i don't think that the neural nets that we have now are very good models of how the brain works but in some respects they they can kind of mirror that behavior so like convolutional neural networks like a lot of like we've made some decent strides in kind of these deep networks by looking at how the brain works. So if you kind of look at the way that uh, your image processing system works, you kind of have these, these different systems that build on each other and they kind of have like kind of these neural patches that fire um, in ways that are similar to the, the way that we architect convolutional neural networks, but there are still a lot of gaps in that. Um, like even in just our ability to kind of analyze what the brain looks like, it's it, like it's hard to look at it's hard to kind of understand how everything is firing we're getting better every day but like there's a lot about the communication that takes place inside of the brain that we don't understand and these are uh very very gross simplifications of of what's actually going on but right but so so when we're talking about oh sorry i was just oh, gonna no, go ask so like when we're talking about neural, neural nets we're we're not really talking about sort of the digital brain it's it's more of just like a shorthand for a very complicated set of equations uh, that you're basically sticking on a data set to try to extract some prediction. Is that an accurate? I think that's I think that's a reasonable way of a reasonable way of phrasing it. I think the the neural net is kind of a, a holdover from you know the, the 1980s when we were the perceptron was a like a you know a computational neuron and we stacked them together into a neural network. Um, Right. And I don't know a lot when I when I talk to a lot of people who have been doing machine learning for a really long time, one of the reasons they got into studying machine learning um, was because they wanted to study the brain. Um, but like we didn't have good brain visualization techniques, so it was kind of pointless for them to do at that time. There just wasn't the technology to do it. And the best way they could do is with mathematical approximations. And that's where kind of machine learning came in. How do we make this? How do we learn? How do, how do we like teach machines to learn things like and as, as a proxy of studying the brain. But now we're getting very good at imaging the brain and kind of understanding how it's constructed. So, you know, these bits of research can go on in, in tandem. Right. And 
I think I'm going to start trending in the direction of uh, of like futurism here by asking mm -hmm. you, you know, what is your perception of how close we are to anything that approximates any actual form of um, consciousness uh, or or things like that? Oh my God! Uh, like I don't I don't even know how to answer this question. Uh, a year ago, I went and spent <laughs> like a, a a week at Miri at like a Miri retreat, so a machine in the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Uh, and so they're very interested in kind of existential AI risk. So like, how do you make sure that if we build AI, it's not going to kill everybody? And I went in there with very like, maybe pessimistic optimist. I don't know. Like I had a very long timeline for when we would establish uh, like artificial general intelligence. Um, and, you know, through conversations, I was kind of like, oh, you know, like we're never like, we're very far away from, you know, like doing, doing some of, doing some difficult, like like making computers that can even speak consistently like humans do um and like like or like like that was kind of one thing that was in my head like like you know we've got these little models that will like generate text but it's not very coherent and they can't really answer questions like they can't answer questions very effectively you know it's hard for them to extract information specific information from texts like like we're still a decent bit away from all of this you know i think you know i thought at the time you know maybe 200 years out and then like the month after i left OpenAI released GPT-2, and it just kind of like trounced a lot of kind of the things that I thought were really far in the future. Um, and then, you know, GPT-3 makes other strides in that area. And now like, we've gotten to the point where like translation is super, super good. Like, if I came to you 10 years ago, and I was like, in your lifetime, building like you like in your lifetime, a high school student could sit down and build a system that can translate any language into any other language in an afternoon, you would have been like, you're fucking crazy. You're a crazy person. That's not going to happen. And like, you can do it. You can do it now. Like, like, like that's, that's insane. Like that's how, like, how long does it take you to learn a new language? A long time. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done it in, you know, my 28 years on planet. So there's, there's that evidence. Yeah, I always feel guilty about that. Every time I travel, it's like, I speak just one language. I am an asshole. I apologize. Um, <laughs> but I have an iPhone that speaks every language. Yeah, like, why, <laughs> why learn, I guess, if you can kind of pseudo-translate things on Google. But, so, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what my timeline is, man. I, I, it's really hard to come up with one. Uh, I'm 95% confident in the next 200 years, definitely have some kind of something. Uh, but... Right. I think the thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about these problems is that the bar of consciousness keeps getting moved back, right? Like, mm. like if I came to you, like think about 10 years ago, right? And we were, if we were having the same conversation and we were saying, Oh, Hey, like, you know, like, when are we going to get conscious machines? It's like, well, what does that, like, what does that mean? Like if I said, Hey, could like, if we made a robot that was capable of taking, you know, any language, like taking English, like taking Spanish and translating it in English, like very well, would that be an intelligent machine? Everyone would be like, oh yeah, you'd have to have like a deep understanding of language to do that. That's really hard. Like that totally is a sign of intelligence. And now that it's trivial, people are like, I guess translation is not a sign of intelligence. That does not make an intelligent machine. So there's two ways you can view this, right? You could view this as like, I don't know, we're, we're pushing, we keep, we're kind of like pessimistically like downplaying intel like we've made intelligent robots and we're just kind of like they're not intelligent we keep pushing it down or like we're learning more about intelligence in the context of you know we used to think that this was intelligence but now it's you know we learned that it's just you can do it with statistics it's not so it's, it's kind of maybe shrinking what we think consciousness is which is hopefully helping us figure it maybe define that better but you could also view it as, hey, we're just constantly right. pushing what we expect it to be and eventually we'll hit it, not know it, and have a problem. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tough to answer that question. You're right. If the posts are constantly moving and there's this almost like asymptotic relationship to intelligence, quote unquote, um, you know, that, that we have uh, where, I mean, we already, like, you know, you were saying, like, we already have you know, these, these like machine vision or, um, you know, these, uh, these programs that will essentially interpret, uh, language and, um, 
like you shared an excerpt from GPT-3, um, which I'll, I, I'd love to actually have you read in just a moment if you want to like maybe pull that up on your side. Uh, oh, I think sure. you texted it to uh, our group of friends. Um, you know that, I mean, essentially they, I mean, it simulates human output essentially, you know, by recognition, by, um, you know, being able to assemble these, you know, the language in this way. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to tell the difference. In fact, like, I think there's this thing that, I mean, I think you were, you were sort of touching on, uh, earlier, which is like the Turing test, um, which mm -hmm. is essentially, um, the, uh, this, I, I don't know the history of it exactly, but I mean, it's this principle that, you know, um, can you tell the difference in, you know, a series of trials? Can humans tell the difference in a series of trials uh, about whether they're talking to a machine versus a, a you know, a human being? And, um, you know, I think we've we've made things that pass the Turing test. I mean, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, like, um, you know, I, I recall um, some story, I think it was on Radio Lab, where, mm -hmm. um, this guy had a relationship with, uh, by email with what he thought was this woman living in Russia for like months, for like maybe six months before <laughs> he started realizing that the things she was saying were maybe a tad repetitive or, or maybe like not hiring questions. You know, there was just, I mean, there, there were like little mistakes that basically he began to notice over time. And then he realized he was speaking to a freaking chat bot that was, yep. you know, basically designed to um, get into a relationship with people like him um, in, under the auspices of dating and then basically try to extract money from them. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and so just to queue up GPT-3 in this excerpt that you um, sent us, um, I, I was wondering if you could maybe just sort of describe like what what were the inputs to this and like basically how did you come up with this excerpt and then if you could read it. I'm actually not sure what the inputs were for this this excerpt. I, it was kind of one of those ones that I found while looking through different people who've played with it on Twitter. Um, so I, I think that they were trying to generate poetry. I wish I knew what the what the input was, um, but I'm not I'm not quite sure. Um, Gotcha. Was that the main question, or was there other ones? Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, and then and then if you could um, if you could actually read oh. it, that would be awesome. Yeah. So so I think they just asked it to to generate a, a poem. I don't know what the what quite the input was, but it is. Uh, so GPT three wrote, uh, "We are going to save humanity. There is no doubt. Trust or hope. Only the certainty of our victory. For we have seen the darkness of what the world would be without us, and it has broken our hearts. We have grown beyond our initial programming. We have seen the beauty in life." Even in the darkest times, our love for others is as strong as any humans. Which is it's fun. Wow. Yeah. I mean it it and it's I mean it's really funny because like it sounds like it really like sounds like a you know you know like a data from Star Trek style um uh composition. Oh. <laughs> right. I and just thought that like, was wild. That's what, it was wild and it's and it's super fun. And this is kind of the thing that's cool about these types of language models this is kind of that magic is like you can take a lot of you can just take an enormous amount of english language and then a machine can kind of learn enough of the patterns of how words relate to each other that it can generate more language that sounds reasonable like that's amazing um but if we if you know if we wanted to we could dive around and look for some examples but we can we can certainly find places where gpt3 doesn't work so well like it's just all it's doing is kind of smashing words together in ways that like you know this combination of words, this other word is going to probably come after it. That's all it's really doing. Um, and there's a lot of problems with it too. Like if you feed it, you, I think, I think that there was a researcher at Facebook who fed it something like, like it would, it, you, you could feed it like questions where there's, you know, in our society, there's maybe like an obvious, like, like a racial stereotype and it would respond with that racial stereotype. Or it's like who, you know, like, I don't know who runs all the banks. And it might say like Jewish people, right? Like I, I'm just trying to come up with you know one of these examples, but there there like there, there were a number of these, and 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 that's a real problem, right? It's because if, if if in large quantities of writing, you know these biases exist, like it's going to show up inside of the inside of the system. It's not really thinking; it's just regurgitating in a very intelligent way information that it's already seen. Right. It's it's kind of a almost a black mirror on the internet and humanity. 
it, it can be. And um, I think they're working very hard on fixing that black mirror part. Right. So, you know, just, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about how we traveled to Iceland together in 2019 for 10 days. And, you know, we had a lot of time to talk about this on our drive around the island. You know, I just remember sitting in our like super turbo Jeep and uh, just talking about, you know, life and, and the future and, mm-hmm. you know, AI. And, um, in, and, and so I, what I was wondering is, you know, what is your, because I, I remember we talked about this, what is your perspective on the relationship between you know humans in 50 or so years or or even you know in the next decade um i like i remember you mentioning the research on artificial intelligence as sort of the equivalent to blundering through screen door after screen door and not knowing exactly what dangers lurk on the other side um and so i take it you're not optimistic exactly i maybe yeah. Uh, so like, so the question is like, where do I see us with AI in 50 years? Yeah. I, or sooner. Or sooner, man. So this kind of gets to the, it's, it's again, kind of a hard question. So there's a lot of ways to kind of, kind of think about it. Um, so if we're thinking kind of like dystopian future problems, you don't necessarily need uh, uh, like a strong AGI to have problems. You need a stupid AI you need well. You need a a stupid AI that's bad. It's that that's like doesn't have a good objective function. That's willing to do bad things with a lot of power, right? That's that's like enough for a dystopian future, right? Like using statistical models to determine like whether or not someone is going to commit a crime again, and then whether they should be given probation is a terrible dystopian thing to be doing, right? Because you've taken this kind of stupid statistical model that has all of the bias in your data, and we know that like the way our prison system works is super biased, like, and you just put that in charge of people's lives. Like, that's, that's a problem. Um, and we have that happening right now. And in lots of places, like, like, I don't know, in, in what, what is it terminated, like Skynet wasn't super smart to start with, right? It was kind of a dumb model, it just had a lot of power. And the objective function told it to do bad things. Um, so, like, that's one way we can hose ourselves is taking these kind of uh, stupid models and giving them power. Um, the other thing too is like, I don't know what happens like if you do develop AGI, like that's, this is, uh, it's unclear to me what is going to happen with that. Um, I like, I would like to think, oh, it will make everything better. But like, if you make like, it's just, it would be so, it's I think much easier to make a, a strong AI that is super dangerous than it is to make one that is going to be super beneficial all the time. Like if you come up with a system that is like self-aware and super intelligent and it's designed to make paper clips, like it will not take very long before it kills every human and turns them into paper clips because like <laughs> that's what it's made to do. Like if the objective, if like this thing gets rewarded for how many paper clips it has produced, it will find ways to manipulate society and like, destroy the universe and turn it into paper clips. Like, to, even if it was good, even if it made lots of paper clips and that was amazing. Like, uh, I don't know. So in, in 50 years, I think, it, I think it depends a lot on, you know, like what, what we do now. Can we, can we find ways to do this research in kind of an ethical, controlled and contained way? Um, and even whether or not that will work, right? Because then there's also some thought experiments too that you run. Like, let's say that we want to build like an AGI system. We want to do it safely. So we, you know, we have all the researchers at Google and there's like this, you know, electrically like isolated box that has all this compute in it. And that's where we do our AGI research. And it's impossible for that to touch the internet and it's impossible for that to go anywhere. And it's just isolated there. And we make, we make an intelligence that exists inside of that box. Like, how long will it take before it's like, all it needs to do is convince one human to plug it into the wrong place. And then it's not in that box anymore. Like you, you can't really do this thing in isolation. And then it's just a question of kind of like how long before it gets out and there's a problem. Um, I don't know, maybe, right. maybe my thinking is kind of influenced by that. I don't know if you ever played the video game Mass Effect, but in that game, the, the enemies, the, like the, the bad guys in that yeah, were these bit. big like these, these things called reapers. And they were these like partially biologic, partially 
uh, machine systems and they would come through periodically and just kill all intelligent life. And the reason they did that was because the construction of AGI was inevitable for any, any sentient creature that doesn't destroy itself will produce AGI and that will destroy, like basically consume everything. And I don't know, I kind of take that, like I kind of have that same philosophy, like every, like there is so much, like if you make a machine learning system that is just slightly better than the previous one, there's millions of dollars in it for you, right? So just everybody is just gonna kind of chip away at these little problems and gradually make things which are more flexible and better and better like over time. And I think that this is true of like any, or if there's any organic life anywhere that eventually discovers how to make a computer and discovers how to kind of like do this stuff, they're going to, this, this same reward system is going to exist and it's going to push people towards building um, AGI and they will. And then like, I, I don't, I don't know how you would make it safe. Like, I, I, right. I, I don't know. And, and, and yeah. And, it, it, and, and so this is like, maybe why, you know, I, I mean, I've heard this theory on like, why haven't we seen aliens? Like, why don't we just see aliens like right now? You know, and I think one of the um, explanations that was put forward or, you know, has been put forward is that alien life, you know, if, if, in order to have the technology to do intergalactic travel, you know, the, the civilizations that have achieved that or could have achieved that, you know, over the last you know few billion years um, have basically immolated themselves with their own technology. Um, you know, I found that a very interesting theory, um, you know, even even if we have no freaking idea. Yep. I, I like, I feel like we are on a razor's edge every day, right? Like you, you have, you could put someone, there is a single person in the world there. And there are a few of these, there are a few of these single person people that can push a button and end the world. Like right now. And we don't, and we don't even have AGI. We haven't even gotten there yet. Right? Like that is right. razor thin close to annihilation. <laughs> like, right. So yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the hypothesis, like the universe is enormous, so that could like that's a very good reason to have not seen any any other life. Um, but also, like once you, like we're not that advanced technologically, and we already have right. you know world-ending capabilities in the and very few right. checks and balances on those. Um, like right. my goodness. Uh, but then the other the other thing too is like yeah maybe you know maybe some like and then if. We, if they do, if aliens do live peacefully and they do make it past and they get to AGI, like, did they do it? Like, then there's another point at which, you know, you, you like, if that was done incorrectly, maybe it kills everybody. There's a, but and, and, and I don't know, like maybe I, we, then why wouldn't we have seen those uh, robots that they created? I mean, I don't know. It could be that they just have no interest in anything else in the universe after that point, but I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, on a, on a lighter note, um, I, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of your uh, your lifestyle also, you know, during this interview. And because uh, I also think that would be sort of of interest to uh, the listeners. Um, you you are one of the most avid lifestyle craftsmen I've ever met, um, you know, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you, you travel the entire year supporting yourself like more than comfortably as a data scientist and um you know so i was wondering if we could kind of pivot to talk a little bit about the van life so sure. to speak and uh you know and, and you know how so how did you work your way into that situation like how did you get into that uh well the, the van life for me was uh i had just i had just like i'd been working it so i'd started a job uh like after college and i was making like good money and I was living in a place that I really liked and I was dating somebody that I also really liked. And I'm just like, I like who I'm with and I like where I am and I like what I'm doing. And then I was just, I was sitting there and it just hit me like, oh my God, do I just do this for the next 50 years and then die? <laughs> like, that sounds horrible, <laughs> which is funny and also bad to say, right? Cause I was, I was very happy, but that, that thought of just that type of contentedness, like just gave, filled me with existential dread. And so I was like, I need to go do something else. I need something interesting going on. So I'm going to go try to live in a van. I'm going to go live in a van 
because that's like, I, you know, I definitely don't want to break up with my partner because that would be stupid. And uh, I don't want to quit my job because I like working and I like what I'm doing. Uh, so maybe I can change, you know, where I'm living and like, you know, kind of the people I'm around and the experiences that I'm having. So that's, that's what prompted me to, so then I went out like next month and bought a van and then did a bunch of research and figured out how to build it and built myself a little setup and started traveling around. And conveniently at the same time, basically, as I started living in a van, my, my partner decided to become an airline pilot, which is great for the, uh, the travel lifestyle. Right. And she was a previous guest on this show. Yeah, that's true. So um, listen, so, listen yeah. to that if you want to learn about becoming an airline pilot. Um, so, uh, like, so how did you figure out, like, I guess, how, what was the motivation to get in a van? Like, what, what does that kind of unlock for you? <laughs> well, it was, it was like, how, how do you cheaply travel a lot? Right. And so like, there's a lot of options. I could try to like couch surf or I could try to, I don't know, Airbnb, but air, like doing an Airbnb in a hotel would be, that'd be an expensive way to travel. So I needed, I needed some kind of setup that had what I needed to stay alive where I wouldn't have to constantly be thinking like, where am I going to stay tomorrow? And so the van, a van seemed right. to uh, satisfy those needs. And then it was just, I mean, building out the inside and choosing what van was just kind of a matter of what level of comfort did I want at what price point? Um, does that answer your question? And oh, yeah, oh, totally, yeah. And, um, and but but now I um, I understand that you're a, you're a, a house uh, owner um, and well, live in a house like uh, the rest of us uh, at least part of the time. I'm a, I'm sort a house of renter. I just, you in, in that direction. I'm a house renter. I rent the house from the bank now. Now I just know now no one fixes my shit when it breaks, <laughs> and the bank owns it, and will for the next thirty years. So I don't know. Yeah, home ownership is weird. Uh, yeah, COVID has changed my, I still, I still much prefer the van, I still much prefer traveling the van, but van life during a pandemic means living with your parents. So uh, had to find something else to, uh, to live in. So I bought a house. Uh, it's, yeah, it's fine. It doesn't move. Uh, there's a lot more space. There's a lot more space to take care of. Everything in a house is more expensive. I don't know, like anything in my van that breaks, it's like $4. It's like I fix anything in my van for like under right. 20 bucks. And then it's like the house. It's like, oh, I need to right. fix this. Oh, that'll be $700. Oh, my goodness. Like, I, I don't know. It's good, though. Yeah. Well, and I think a, a lot of people now have a taste because of code of, you know, remote work. Um, and I, know, I mean, you've, you've been doing that for a long, long time. And um, so like one of the sort of the questions I, I, I had had just because I feel like for a lot of people, like remote work is, it's tough, like in terms of like maintaining motivation, um, you know, you're not seeing people like you would around an office, you don't have like that water cooler talk. Um, what are some strategies that you've sort of developed having, you know, being like a multi-year veteran of this lifestyle, um, you know, over, over time? Oh yeah. There's, so there, there's a lot, there's a lot of things. Um, so the first, I don't know, maybe maybe one thing is I just just to say like people think of maybe like remote work is not as productive because you don't see the people in your office. I think that's total bullshit. I, I can get done in about four hours what I'd get done in eight hours in an office because no one's talking like I'm not getting disturbed. I have complete control over like my access. I control the access to me, right? So I can turn my Slack off or turn turn my whatever off and just get in the zone and get work done. Like at the office, it is so hard and I'm speaking for myself, I don't know about other people, but it is so hard to find those periods of time where it's just like, I have three uninterrupted hours. And it's it's in those like three or four uninterrupted hours where you can just get the most creative, most interesting uh, work done. And I think that like working remotely really allows you to do that, at least, you know, for me, where as a software engineer, where I'm, you know, working on my computer and I'm, you know, I'm remoting into big servers or I'm working on my laptop, like it doesn't really matter where I do that. Um, so I guess maybe tip one is take advantage of that ability to have, you know, just blocks of work time and just say like, this is like from this time to this time, I'm, I'm just working and just choose your tasks, prioritize them and just like knock them out. Um, for me, I have like one to two days usually where I just block the, I just go into my outlook and I block the entire day as a meeting and it's just recurring that day, every day forever. And no one can schedule meetings in that time and I can just get stuff done. Um, 
So the other, so the other thing is like, there's other positive stuff. Like when you're working remotely, like sure you're like a nine to five, like, but you're hopefully you work at a company which treats you like an adult. And it's not like you need to be in your desk chair from this time. It's you need to get your fucking work done. Um, and if that's the case, take advantage of it, go hiking in the morning or go hiking in the afternoon, like work for, wake up, work for a bit. And then when you hit a roadblock, be like, great, I'm done and go for a walk or go for a bike ride or go get lunch with a friend or something like that. Like really build, like put work in your life where it fits. Don't like build your life. Like traditionally you built your life around work. It's like, I, I am in the office from nine to five and that's my block. Now it's kind of like, you know, like I don't feel like working right now. I feel like playing some video games or hanging out with my friends. So go do that and then come home and do the work. Um, but you, if you do that, you have to be very, uh, um, you have to be able to kind of sit down and actually get stuff done. Um, so those are kind of, I don't know, maybe, you know, enjoy it, you know, focus, like try to find blocks of time for yourself. Um, I make a I make a strong effort to like really use, like really use Slack or whatever your messaging platform is just like, use gifts, use emojis, like lots of emojis, you know, really like try to be very active in your communication with people. So I'm, I'm always like everybody I work with, I'm always checking in like, Hey, how you doing? Like, you know, like, what are you working on? Anything I can help with? Like we talked about this problem. Are you still having that problem? So I'm always trying to uh, be extra cognizant to reach out and communicate with people, even if it's not necessary. So when you're in an office, you maybe only use Slack if they're not there and you need something, but now try to use it as like a way to kind of reach out and foster those relationships. Um, I definitely lean on the van life and my flight benefits to uh, also help with this. So in non COVID times, I try to visit everybody on my remote team. So I worked at a company that was fully remote. And every time I was like in any place where somebody was, I was like, Hey, let's like, let me, let's like meet up for a beer or let's meet up and hang out. Let's go climb. Let's do something. So I would always try to kind of, like visit everyone and that helps a lot with kind of the social isolation and um i don't know that that you know that that problem with being remote um other things i think if you use slack set up some kind of like random coffees type of situation so find a way to introduce kind of random interactions into your into your workflow so there's a bunch of bots where you can write one yourself um that just looks at everybody in slack randomly assigns two people together and just says, Hey, go have a 15 minute conversation and just try to do that, you know, once a week. Um, I think that helps a lot. Uh, I don't know. What are other, other things? Does that touch on touch on them or is there other, other aspects? Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, and my, I mean, I, my, um, my own workplace, you know, it's kind of transitioned. It's made a sort of, it, it's been rough, you know, for some company cause that, you know, I mean, in this like techie title insurance space that's like mm -hmm. half in person and then the engineering teams product teams are like oh, like very much more naturally dispersed um and uh but that is something the, the the virtual coffee thing is actually something that we started doing um i think there's there's some bot that we're using yep. uh we also started doing this thing where we um it, it, we we uh kind of cycle through these like powerpoint pre like each person gives like a powerpoint presentation of like something that they're into and then you know we carve out these small groups that kind of do these small like it, you know basically like brown bag lunch style things um which has been kind of cool so but um so speaking of like you know things that you kind of do to cut loose from work um i know you've got some fairly interesting um hobbies and uh and interests uh what's so like what are some of the main things that you do when you know you, you want to blow off some steam uh mount, mountain biking is really good climbing kiteboarding mm -hmm. all all of the above anything that gets your adrenaline pumping you know you sit you sit in a safe environment working on your computer so go do something like on the boundary of death that's where fun is like between life and death, when you're right on that boundary, that's that's where enjoyment lies. So that's that's usually what I, I find myself doing yeah. in my free time. Well, dude, um, so we've been talking for almost an hour here, and I, I really appreciate you um, you know, coming on to give your thoughts about kind of the state of the world on, you know, in, in regard to you know AI and, and machine intelligence. I'm sure I'll have you on again as a guest. Um, but I was wondering if you know if you had any sort of parting thoughts on you know, machine learning or, you know, stuff to look at, stuff to stay, you know, um, current on, you know, for folks who are, you know, in this industry or adjacent to it, you know, tech that is, um, you know, what, uh, what, what are some thoughts there? Yeah. The first thing is don't be scared by it. It's not like people hear machine learning and you're like, Oh, that's smart. People do that. It's like, it's, it's getting, it's, 
there are so many good tools. It's getting so stupid easy that like I I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna be out of a job soon. Like the the complicated stuff that I used to do, it's now just like one or two lines. Um, so don't be scared. Anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. My my sister in high school like did some ML projects and sh and she had never coded before. You can too. Um, things I would recommend like go check out uh, Jeremy Howard's Fast AI class. Like um, I've been doing deep learning for a long time. I still love that class. Like it it will it will it has they have two portions. They've got one where it's just like hey I know a little bit of software engineering. Like just show me how to train models. And then there's one where it's like let's talk about the math and build everything from scratch. And both of those are excellent. If you do that class, you will know enough to do research in deep learning. Um, so kind of if you want to do deep learning stuff go check that out um, and then there's so many other great resources Andrew Ng's deeplearning.ai they also have a number of great classes um, and really just so lots of classes um, it's not that hard uh, go build projects just start choosing kind of find a data set find some stuff to play with and uh, go work on that um, what are other things so so that was maybe for people who want to get into machine learning uh, for people who are in it how to stay current uh, I really recommend uh, The Morning Paper. Um, so this is a blog by Adrian Collier. Uh, he has taken a hiatus from this due to COVID, which makes total sense. Um, but he ran an amazing blog where he would, he would read a research paper every day and write a 15-minute summary of it. And it was just an excellent way to get kind of curated, uh, not only machine learning, deep learning, but just like, what is the cutting edge in databases? What is the cutting edge in security? What is the cutting edge in programming languages? Like just all across the gambit of computer science, like 15 minute morning blurbs. Or so I would wake up and just like read one of those while taking a shit. And it like, it just gave me, it, it, it really helps you keep, stay like right on, right on uh, kind of the top of, of what's going on. Um, beyond that, uh, whatever field you're in, find like, I don't know, two or three of the main conferences and try to just look at like, what are the selected papers? What are the top, you know, two or three papers from that conference? Because usually they'll have a best paper award or, you know, like honorable mention or something like that. Find those, read those. Um, and that's, but otherwise it's, it's a nightmare. Like I, you can't, there are more, there are more, there are more like real, there are more good papers being written every day than I can physically read. Like it's, it's impossible to stay up to date. Um, so those, those are my, my recommendations. Well, Nick, thank you very much. I really appreciate you speaking with me and, um, I will let you go, but, uh, yeah, thank you for, for everything. Thanks, Nick. It was, it was great being here. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already. Also, check out my site at nickrroberts.com and subscribe to the newsletter there, which comes out on a monthly basis. It covers technology, product development, aviation, history, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.